Before we begin, if you like what you hear on Mile High Report Radio Podcast, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and go ahead and click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Mile High Report Radio with your hosts, Adam Malnati and Ian St. Clair. Get involved with the Denver Broncos conversation at milehighreport.com. And now it's time to get to work. All right, Ian, well, we are uh, back with the Mile High Report Radio podcast, uh, kind of a a somber beginning for us. We are, uh, like most of the sports world, um, sort of thinking a lot about the occurrence of Kobe Bryant uh, and his passing, the helicopter crash that took his life along with the lives of uh, eight other people, including his daughter, uh, two other young girls, 13-year-old girls, and, and uh, the, the sadness that has sort of uh, rocked the sports world because of the, the shocking uh, happening of, of Kobe Bryant's death and the way that uh, it was so unexpected. I also think, and I, and I didn't mention this before, but it was something that I wanted to say. Uh, so before we started recording, we obviously had our conversation. It was something that I wanted to run past you, and I'll, I'll do it now. Do you think part of the shock uh, of his death is just that in this day and age, it's very easy to say, I don't believe that because a lot you get these death announcements, these fake death announcements on Twitter. And uh, it was one of the things that we, you know, when, when I got the news, I was at my son's baseball camp with some other parents and uh, somebody had said, Hey, you know, Kobe Bryant died. And I know there's no way that that's true. That's a, that's a hoax. That's, a, you know what I'm saying? It was one of those things. And then, you know, everybody's jumping on their phones and looking and it turns out to be true. Do you think part of the shock and, and I, we can get into some of the other aspects of it, but do you think part of it comes from the fact that we get these death hoax more often than we should, obviously. And so you almost just don't believe it. And then even when you confirm it, your brain doesn't really believe it because even you've seen it, but you know you, that it could be a hoax. There's, we have those that come out all the time. That to me is something that sort of increases the shock of it i i don't think it's so much that it's because of hoaxes i think it's just the the human response to not believe news like that i i think regardless of social media was around that would still be the case if you picked up the newspaper the next day or you heard a radio bulletin from los angeles radio or national radio you would still have that natural response to no this isn't true it can't be true because when you look at the responses from people throughout the course of the rest of sunday and throughout monday it's we don't understand it we can't wrap our minds around it and i think because we don't understand loss is a part of human life and it's the one thing that no matter what When it's your time, it's your time. But we still can't wrap our minds around that that's still the case. And it's not about making sense of it. It's not about wrapping your mind around it. It's coming to the the notion and the thought that there's finality to it. There's finality to life. There isn't no matter who you are, no matter what you are, no matter what you do, there comes that time where it's your time. 
and unfortunately for Kobe Bryant and Gigi and the seven other people on that plane, including a, a junior college baseball coach, his wife, and his daughter. John Altabelli was was a great college baseball coach. Over seven hundred wins. Uh, one of those one of those guys that if you're if you're if you ever played high school baseball, college baseball, it's probably a name you just know just in passing, and you go, wait a minute, I know that name. And then you look into it and you go, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of this guy. Not a, a super famous guy, but obviously someone who uh, I remember hearing the name and going, I, I recognize that name. I don't. I never had any connection to him, but I did recognize his name. As Yankees fans, he played a huge role in Aaron Judge becoming who he is now for the New York Yankees. So it's just it, it's about the finality of it, where regardless if it's expected if it's from a cancer from from a long life or from a crash it's hard to come to grips with the finality of life and i think the big thing with kobe bryant is there's that dichotomy of who he was early in his career because as a young budding journalist i was at the student newspaper at the university of northern colorado when the rape, the alleged rape took place and was over and hanging over Kobe Bryant and the state of Colorado and the NBA and the Lakers. But then you see the man that he was able to become over the course of the remainder of his career and post-career. And you see those videos of him interacting with Gigi and knowing the difference that he was making through girls with his Mamba Mamba Academy, the Mamba Academy and what he was doing for girls basketball, for women's basketball. So it's, it's one of those things where I I think the closest equivalent to it. And we were talking about this before we recorded is finding the equivalent in pop culture, whether it's music or sports. And to me, the closest that there's been is princess Diana when she died in that tunnel in 1997. And then I I think the next one would be Michael Jackson. I remember being in the newsroom when I got word that Michael Jackson had passed. So, and regardless of how you feel Jackson, just not about Michael Jackson. It's, I got to tell this story because it's, it's interesting. You bring him up. Uh, My daughter who, uh, you know, as I, as I said, I have spent extra time, reminding her how much I, I care about her and love her, um, was born the same day that Michael Jackson died. And exactly the same day. And um, we have pictures of, you know, holding the baby with the TV on in the background uh, and the information about my... And even at that time, we were celebrating the, the birth of our our firstborn daughter and incredibly excited and uh this is such a a big deal and 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 it is and she is she is amazing by the way uh in in ways that i i mean she's like she's smarter than i am and she's you know all those wonderful things and we were still that was still one of the first things that people would say when they would come into the room hey did you hear about like it was so such a big moment I, th- I think you're absolutely right in recognizing that Michael Jackson's death was a huge moment that sort of brings everybody to a standstill. I think that's the point you're making with Princess Diana, with Michael Jackson. 
everybody stopped. Even even in some of the most important moments of your life, you still took a, a second to go, holy crap, can you believe this? It's insane. And poor Farrah Fawcett also died that day and nobody talks about it. And I, I think that that speaks to the to the the reach of Michael Jackson. And I I didn't mean for that to be a pun or anything like that. Yeah. Oops. But I, I think it, it's just in terms of historically, I, I think the name that keeps coming up for me is Roberto Clemente. Because even though I wasn't alive for nine years later and uh, after 1972, you still hear about it. And I, and when you think we're always looking for comparisons, regardless of anything in sports, there's always comparisons. And I think that's true for musicians. I think that's true for actors. I think it's true for movies. We're always trying to compare to, to read, to, to measure the difference that they make or how great they were. And the thing about Roberto Clemente is that that's the name that keeps coming up with Kobe Bryant, at least in terms of, American sports, and you have one that's probably even bigger than Kobe Bryant in terms of global reach. And I will admit it's one that I had not heard before you mentioned his name, but I will I'll let you take control to 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 show the reach of sports and sports that maybe we not even maybe we don't even think of or watch. Right. You know, it's interesting because we were talking about how you know we're talking about global reach and. Uh, American sports. It's funny how we 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 live in sort of a sports bubble. Obviously, we are Bronco fans, and this is a, a Denver Broncos podcast. Uh, and that's you know we live in that sports bubble of, of the NFL, uh, maybe college football, maybe you're a Major League Baseball fan, maybe you're a, a basketball fan. And the global reach of those sports, basketball clearly has the largest global reach of any of those American sports that that people pay attention to. But the the death that sort of stood out to me or that jumped into my mind when it came to just the global impact. And I love your Clemente um, comparison because he was, you know, that was a shocking one. He was still playing. His career wasn't over. He had just had his 3000th hit. Uh, and the, the person who I'm going to talk about was also still competing. Uh, he was a race car driver. He was a formula one racer by the name of Ayrton Senna, Brazilian uh, race car driver who is to this day considered to be, uh, perhaps the greatest driver in the history of Formula One and Formula One racing for all of its, uh, you know, sort of lack of, of viewership in the United States is perhaps the largest sport aside from soccer throughout the world. They run races in on every continent except for Antarctica. They uh, are, you know, the Mercedes, Ferrari, you've got, uh, you know, these these giant uh, giant uh, names in the automotive industry competing, and it is uh, an incredibly popular sport throughout the world. And when Ayrton Senna died, he died on a racetrack in Italy in a place that was sort of innocuous and sort of not, not a place where you would have expected him to die, and it was such a shock. It brought the sport to a complete halt. And interestingly enough about you know racing in general, it's a dangerous sport, and people died... I don't want to say often, but it was a, a common occurrence that people had become accustomed to. And Ayrton Senna's impact on the sport as a race car driver and his social impact on the sport uh, as a Brazilian and what he meant to that country and to, to people around the world, it really did bring that sport to a standstill. And, and we talk about uh, uh, bringing something to a standstill. Kobe Bryant's death 
kind of accomplished the same thing. And I don't mean accomplished in a good way, but we sort of arrive at that same point of bringing things to a standstill. And the the idea, you know, Princess Diana's death brought the world to a standstill. I mean, you got uh, Elton John rewriting a song and, and sort of this whole... Uh, outpouring of love and support for her and her family. You had when when Michael Jackson died, everything stopped. The music industry stopped. When Prince died, and that was another one you brought up, everything stopped. When Ayrton Senna died, the entire sport of Formula One racing shut down and couldn't uh, continue to operate until they had processed that that loss. Uh, and so, you know, these those types of deaths are 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 fascinating and sad and tragic and really do point to sort of the the frailty of life and i think the one thing that you can really take away from from this if you can find a silver lining if you can find a positive if you can find a way to to turn this around and i and the loss of nine lives three young girls and families ripped apart and 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 really devastated by it if you can find some positive to it it's that you, it it gives you an opportunity to stop and to examine your own life and the things that are going on around you and look at your family and your friends. And, and it reminds you to tell them that you love them and to tell them that they're important to you and, and that they will always be with you in some way and uh, reach out. And, uh, you know, you, you have to, you have to recognize that the tragedy of it all does give you the chance to, to step back from your own uh, existence and your own sort of in the own, your own crap, for lack of a better term and and remind yourself that we're mortal we're here for a short period of time and when, and while we're here we should do things in a way that uh, allow us to have a positive impact on people and make sure that they know that we care about them that we love them and that we and that we 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 are glad that they are a part of our lives and if if you're one of those people that's having prob- problems with a family member or a friend and and if you can make that uh leap to sort of move on and accept the the differences that you have and still love each other you should do that uh, and that's that's what you really should take away from this don't let time run out before you have that opportunity the other one that you mentioned with in terms of auto racing uh, obviously dale earnhardt at the right. daytona 500 in 2001 was a shocking event for american sports fans because even if you didn't watch nascar you knew the name dale earnhardt um, he hadn't even reached his 50th birthday yet, which is incredible. And then in terms of Broncos parlance, the one that will always come to mind even 13 years later is Derek Williams. And I, I tweet this out every time on January 1st. I had the pleasure of covering Derek Williams, of getting to know Derek Williams. And at the time throughout that, through that season in 2005, it was remarkable because I looked like Jake Plummer. So he would constantly rib me for it. Like he would, he would constantly say, it's probably not the guy you want to be looking like. I was like, well, how do you know he's not looking like me? So it was the thing that always stood out to me was Darren Williams' smile. And I will always remember that it was infectious, but also his giant personality. And it really does show you that at any moment, when it's your time, it's your time. But you remember the bad in terms of Kobe Bryant. It's impossible to not. 
but also to see the improvements that he made over the course of his life and the change that he made and the change that he brought and the man that he became. I don't think that you can look at it without one or the other. I think the, the interactions that you see with his daughter were just incredible. And this is what I told you before we started recording. The reason he took a helicopter was so that he could be there for his kids. He missed an event because he was stuck in traffic. And anyone who has been in, in L.A. or Southern California knows exactly what that's like. He didn't want that to happen anymore, ever again. So he took a helicopter. He took a helicopter every day to get to the Staples Center, took it back so that he could be there to pick his kids up, to take them to their events, to be there. And as a parent, that's huge, to be there for your kids, knowing that this is Kobe Bryant. There are some people in that position who don't take their role as a father seriously. Because one of the things that you hear from, from veteran athletes who are in that position is they, they didn't give the focus to their kids that they should have. And Kobe Bryant did. And he's one of the greatest to ever pick up a basketball. In terms of the last 30 years, it's Michael Jordan, it's Kobe Bryant, it's LeBron. Those are the three that are generally thrown out. And the fact that he put it on himself that, no, it's more important that I'm a father, that I'm there for my girls. I, I think just it, it speaks to the man that he became. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, the old man never missed an event, uh, and I do – everything I can to make sure that I'm there for, for my kids events and will, uh, and until, until my son retires from the majors, he's going to be a major league baseball player. That's, I'm just going to put that in the air and hopefully it works. You think it worked? We'll find out. We'll find- <laughs> hopefully it's for the Yankees. Yeah. I mean, that's what he wants. He would, he would love that. So I know how many people just turned it off. Like, ah, Yankees. That's ah, all right. Uh, well, I worked out for Garrett Cole, so maybe your son can follow in Garrett Cole's hey, shoes. You need to make him oh, sign. or Derek Jeter, or Derek. He loves Derek Jeter. I, I, I will say he's so excited about the Hall of Fame. You and I were excited about Larry Walker. He was excited about Derek Jeter. I'm like, I don't even know that you ever saw him play, but all right, that's fine. So he and I've been watching. The, you remember the Ken Burns baseball documentary? The nine, oh, yeah. it's nine innings. Or I mean, they're, they're he. It's on Amazon Prime. Here's a little plug for you. Nobody's gonna send me any money, but why not? Check it out. He loves it. We've watched, we watched the first two innings together the last two nights. He wants to watch the third inning tonight. I'm like, we might want to take a break. It's going to start to get a little overdone, but he, he's all into it. All right, let's uh, move on to some Broncos talk here because there is some news in the, in Broncos country that we need to uh, we need to probably get to. It's it's kind of like old new news, actually. It's, it's the way that it's sort of been slowly trickling out, but the Denver Broncos have, I guess they've made it official. Mike Shula has been hired as the Denver Broncos quarterbacks coach. So uh, it's a, it's officially, it's officially official. Is that how we're saying that? That that's how it's worded now in, in the Twitterverse days where you get the initial report and then the team makes it officially official. And that's what the Broncos did on Tuesday. And in the release that the team sent out as they do, uh, there is a quote from Vic Fangio and this is what he said. Mike is a well-respected coach around the league, especially when it comes to developing quarterbacks. The familiarity he has with Pat Shermer is an added bonus, but what's most impressive is Mike's proven track record coaching quarterbacks at many different stages of their careers. We're fortunate to add someone with his depth of experience, coaching ability, and unique perspective to our staff. And in terms of those 
quarterbacks and his development. Andrew Mason with with DNVR had a great tweet where he gave you he gave fans uh, a couple of examples of the help that Mike Shula brings to quarterbacks, and he said. Drew Locke will be the fifth primary starter with pro experience that Mike Shula has inherited as an NFL quarterback, coach, or offensive coordinator. All the previous four, Trenton Dilfer, Jay Fielder, David David Gerard, and Eli Manning, had better overall numbers with Shula than without him. And then he added, on average, the QBs with previous pro experience that Mike Shula inherited had passer ratings of 7.5 points higher with Shula than without him. So for Drew Locke, Mace continues, matching that would give him a passer rating of 97.2 among 42 quarterbacks with at least 100 attempts that would have placed him 13th in 2019. Not bad. And then then Tim, with Mile High Report, added in his story that Shula was also critical to the development of Cam Newton, first as his quarterback coach in 2011-2012, and then as his offensive coordinator from 2013 to 2017. The rise of Newton culminated in their 2015 Super Bowl appearance for the Carolina Panthers and an MVP award for Cam. <clears throat> but we all know how that season ended. Von Miller well, broke him. Well, I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'm excited about the addition of Mike Shula to pair with Pat Shermer. And we've gone over some of the accolades that Pat Shermer has done over his coaching career, being a, a huge piece of the puzzle to develop Donovan McNabb, also Nick Foles, then Daniel Jones this year with the New York Giants. But what's also nice and I I think incredibly noteworthy is that Pat Shermer liked Drew Locke. In fact, he really, really liked Drew Locke. And he was actually at Locke's Missouri Pro Day. So you're going to get two guys who have the experience and the reputation of developing a young quarterback. And then in the process, you also get what Vic Fangio wants, and that's an offensive system and an offense that's going to attack more and score more points because that's how you beat the Kansas City Chiefs is by scoring touchdowns. Right, and I think the other real interesting aspect to all of this, and and it's, it's interesting to note, Rich Scangarolo, not a bad guy, probably will develop into a, a, a solid offensive coach, offensive coordinator of some kind uh, in the NFL, but uh, that was the type of hire that John Elway was comfortable with. He, run, he ran an offense that John Elway liked, uh, and that was a John Elway hire for sure. And uh, what this says to me, and, and I think that it's a pretty obvious statement, is that the Denver Broncos are Vic Fangio's team. Now, that doesn't mean that John Elway isn't going to make personnel decisions and isn't going to be uh, you know, in charge of bringing in players and signing players and that kind of thing, but it was clear that Vic Fangio wanted to change at offensive coordinator. It was obvious that there were issues between uh, him and Rich Scangarello. I think that some of it was a little overdone in the media, but also uh, when you get stories like that, you know there's a little bit of truth to it. And I would, I would argue, or I would just make mention of the fact that uh, it's, it's pretty obvious that this is Vic Fangio going out and saying, These are, this is what we need to win. Uh, I got the defense. I know that we can stop teams, but we have to put points on the board. And the thing that the Broncos have struggled with over the course of the last, I, I mean, I guess I would argue all the way back to late 2014, 
is scoring points. Even with Peyton Manning as quarterback and that, that Super Bowl run, they did not average a lot of points. So it's clear that in today's NFL, with teams like the Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens, for example, and uh, the, the explosiveness that you see in some of these offensive juggernauts, you've got to be able to keep up. And being able to slow them down is fine. And holding the Chiefs to 25 to 27 points is fantastic unless you can only score 13 and then it doesn't matter. So or three or, or three for that matter. I was trying to be a little more positive. I tried to avoid the, the number three there, but it was probably the right number three or six, I guess nine total. Uh, it, it's just one of those things that the change in the NFL, it, it, necess, it was necessary, excuse me, as I stumble through that to get a change at the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks co- coach position. And, you know, I like TC McCartney. I think that that's one that, uh, you know, sort of from a nostalgia standpoint, uh, he's the son of Salinesi. If you're a, a, a Colorado and you, and you grew up in Colorado, you know, the name Salinesi, he was the quarterback at CU who passed away, uh, at a, at a very young age. And, uh, Bill McCartney is his grandfather. He was the head coach at CU when they won the national championship. And so there's a little bit of nostalgia there with TC McCartney, but the, the truth is as much of a, I think he had a pretty good rapport with Drew Locke, but it, I don't think he was really uh, up to the task of, of really bringing him along. And now what you have is an offensive coordinator and a quarterback's coach who have a proven track record of developing quarterbacks and implementing an offensive system that in today's NFL is going to put up points. And that's the, that's the whole idea from, from this point forward is, is you've got to score. You can't win if you don't score. And you can't win if you don't score enough. And that's really been the Broncos' issue for several seasons now. So, again, Vic Fangio, his fingerprints are all over this. You could tell that this was a move that he wanted to make. And it it shows that he's in control of this team. This is his team. That's what he's putting the product on the field. Uh, and the coaching staff is clearly his coaching staff. And, and I think it's all for the better. And, and this will work out well for John Elway also. He's also going to look good in this because the team is going to hopefully look better. Now, obviously, we don't know from a results standpoint whether or not this is going to work, right? We're, 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 we're going to have to wait until training camp and preseason and, and then the actual 2020 season. But until we get there, at least on paper, this seems like uh, the Broncos are headed in the right direction. And I, I think that's the big thing is that you can be excited about it. You can be excited about the change that Vic Fangio has initiated. And now it's so fascinating about the dichotomy of you go from one of the least experienced offensive coordinators to now one of the most and same with quarterbacks coach. And now you have one of the most veteran coaching staffs in the national football league. You have now two former head coaches as a coordinator or an offensive line coach with Pat Shermer and Mike Munchak, that is huge for the development of players. And I think, yes, it's huge that you want to get an offense that attacks more and has the ability to, to test the defenses and score touchdowns, but you also want to be able to develop your young quarterback. And now you have two guys who have that track record who have that proven ability to get it done. And that's what makes it exciting because 
all of it ties back to having Drew Locke. As we've talked about since Drew Sember and now in Drew, the, the new Drew year and the year of the Drew, it's about the quarterback. It opens up so many different avenues for this franchise to add pieces to to build and actually improve in certain areas because you have that salary cap space. You have the flexibility now in the draft to not have to reach or potentially trade up or look for a quarterback. You can now get draft nits will hate this best player available. And that's, I think that's what's so exciting. And I, I get the argument of, yes, some people wanted continuity, but having continuity for the sake of continuity is more of a hindrance to the success of your team and your franchise than keeping it. And now you have an offensive coordinator who's been a head coach, probably won't be a head coach again. He's like Wade Phillips, as we've talked about in previous episodes. So now you have a guy who will potentially be there, hopefully for the long run for Drew Locke. Obviously things are, are uh, I think, pointed in the right direction. We've, we've talked about it since – uh, really since about halfway through the the 2019 season, and especially since Drew Locke took over, we talked about that arrow pointing up, uh, the the Broncos moving in the right direction. I think that that every little step forward is really a, a way for the fans to sort of look at things and, and get excited. And, and another thing that I think fans can get excited about, and I'm going to pivot a little bit, or is this a segue? I don't know. It's a segue pivot, uh, is the Hall of Fame is, is coming up, or the announcement for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And while we've been disappointed uh, over the course of the last few weeks with the uh, the insane uh, snub of Randy Gratishar. We do still have uh, Steve Atwater to look forward to, and hopefully uh, he will get his knock uh, on on the door. Uh, you had a nice article on that, and in, in uh, on MHR the was it was that today? Was that Tuesday? I can't remember. It's all running together on me here. <laughs> it's actually on Sunday. Sunday, that's when it it's was for horse tracks. Like I said, it's all running together on me here. Uh, and, and also I know that you and I sort of, uh, are not in a, we don't agree with this obviously, but, but John Lynch is also, um, there, uh, I, I will say this and it's something that popped into my head as we were talking about this and, and, or as we were talking and I was thinking about the hall of fame and it, it dawned on me that, uh, Steve Atwater was ahead of John Lynch last season when it came to safeties and going into the hall of fame and in, tw- in 2020, I'm not sure that that's the case, and the and the reason I say that is because I would I would venture a guess that that John Lynch will leapfrog Steve Atwater simply because John Lynch is the uh, general manager of the San Francisco 49ers who are playing in the Super Bowl, and wow, that is that's going to make for some really good TV if they're able to announce that uh, as he's preparing to watch his team play in the Super Bowl. So the way that they've done sort of the TV stuff. The, for for this year's Hall of Fame for the announcements in 2020, it it makes me nervous that Steve Atwater will once again be uh, left off the list simply because he's not on TV. And that's what we said on the last podcast. I think uh, no matter what people say, no matter how they think the tide is turning for Steve Atwater, I never want to hear that term again because that's what was said about Randy Gratishar. And instead, you get a guy in Jim Colvert who went to two Pro Bowls. So I, I think the fact that you now 
have the 49ers in the Super Bowl, and they've set the precedent with David Baker, the Hall of Fame president, going to New York and telling Bill Cowher and then flying across the country for the next day in Los Angeles to tell Jimmy Johnson. It's clearly about good TV. That's clearly what the Pro Football Hall of Fame wants. So what better way to do it than induct John Lynch with Troy Polamalu, which I think is just insane. I think Steve Atwater is better than both of them. I think Steve Atwater was a more transcendent player than even Troy Polamalu. But as we've said before, it's not about comparing players. It's not saying why one player is more deserving for another because it's so subjective. And the thing that makes it so maddening is we won't know how they voted. We won't know who voted for Troy Polamalu, John Lynch, or Steve Atwater. We'll just know the category of where they ranked in terms of finalists. Were they the third group of finalists? Were they the second group of finalists? But in terms of stats, Patrick Smythe with the Denver Broncos tweeted a very interesting statistic on Monday. And it said that there are 24 players in NFL history selected to eight or more Pro Bowls and start three or more Super Bowls. 20 are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The others, Steve Atwater, Troy Polamalu, Peyton Manning, who's not yet eligible, and Tom Brady. So... I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm 50 50 at this point on a Tuesday afternoon, a couple of days before February 1st in Miami, when the 48 members of the Hall of Fame selection committee will gather and spend 10 or however many hours going over the 15 finalists for the modern era. I'm 50 50 on Steve Atwater. I really think that this is his year. I really think with guys like Jim Trotter and some of these these other voters who are saying that it's his time, I can see it happening because they realize how great Steve Atwater is. But at the same point, I can't shake the great TV. Yeah, I, I, that's the that's the concern. If you are uh, if you are someone who believes that. Uh, that the hall of fame operates in a, in a way that doesn't monitor TV ratings and doesn't think about uh, what's best for the NFL and how is this going to look on TV, then you're, you're not paying attention. And while I think it would be, I would love if this was the year of the safety Uh, we've talked about, we've talked about this with Mace uh, when he's been on the podcast before we've talked about it uh, just in general the the safety is one of those positions that's highly underrepresented in the in the NFL's Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, partly because stats don't always tell the story. It's harder to compare guys and their impact on the field. It, it you know different safeties play in different ways. Uh, you, you know when Ed Reed went into the Hall of Fame, he had he had said before he was inducted, if if Steve Atwater doesn't get into the Hall of Fame, give him my place. Uh, you know th- well, there, there isn't. There, the other quote, uh, if we're going to go with quotes, Wade Phillips told an intermediary, an intermediary of uh, Wade Phillips and me that Steve Atwater is the best free safety he's ever coached, ever. Ever. There you go. So, I, I mean, I, the safety is a position that doesn't have 
enough representation in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I would love to see a year like this year where I'm not going to say John Lynch isn't deserving. I don't think he belongs in the ring of fame in Denver. That's just sort of my own opinion on that. Uh, and, and yours as well, obviously. Uh, but I, I do think it would make sense to have Troy Polamalu, Steve Atwater and John Lynch, all three of them go in together. I'd be, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Uh, the year of the safety would be a way to, as we've talked about, move that backlog forward. There is a backlog in that position where you have guys that deserve to be uh, in the Hall of Fame. I think was it Kenny Easley who, uh, in his induction speech, made a push for that and, and, and used Steve Atwater in his speech as an example of guys who belonged in the Hall of Fame. This is the time that that needs to happen. I, I My concern with Steve, and and we love, we love Steve. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. My concern with him is that the longer it takes, the less likely it becomes. We've reached a point now, I think, that with some players, you get to sort of like a peak where this is as far as they're going to go and this is as high as they're going to get. And if it doesn't happen now, it may never happen or it'll happen with the senior committee and it'll have to be something that takes place outside of what the normal Hall of Fame induction is. And that's not fair to Steve. It's not fair to a player who was, as you said, a transcendent player in the NFL a guy whose impact was felt by opponents and teammates alike, a guy who really did change the face of the position, a, a guy who hit somebody who would hit people so hard that they still probably shake a little bit when you say his name. I'm reminded of the scene from The Lion King when the hyenas are standing there and one of them says Mufasa and the 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 hyenas shake and then they, you know I I I imagine if you said Steve Atwater to Christian Okoye, he would shiver. That's just there, there's not a lot of guys in the history of the NFL that did that to people. And on top of it, he was practically a Super Bowl MVP if it hadn't been for Terrell Davis, which we've we've talked about. And quite frankly, there's not a better there's just not a better guy out there, right? There's just not a better human being out there who is more deserving than Steve Atwater. And I hope it happens. I, I I'm not sure I'm 50-50 like you. I think I'm I'm, my glass is, is 70% empty, uh, but it might be because I've been drinking a little bit from it, trying to just get through the day. What's going to be incredibly interesting is who else is going to be voted in because you have some offensive tackles who are deserving, like Tony Baselli with the Jacksonville Jaguars, who is arguably the face of that franchise. So it, it will be interesting to see what what five people end up making it. And I believe there are two safeties of the 10 for the seniors list that that Blue Ribbon panel put forth. I'd have to go back and look. But I believe there's two safeties included in that, including one from the Green Bay Packers so I, it, it, and one from the Steelers. So maybe it's three. It might be three. I can't remember. I know, I know that Leroy Butler isn't on there either, so – uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's another well, he's one. Mo- he's a modern era finalist. Right. He's he's right there with John Lynch, Steve Atwater, and Troy Polamalu. Here are the safety. Let's get let's get them all in there. Let's just let's just clear them out so we can stop worrying about safeties in the future. I think that goes to why I think we touched on this on the last podcast. Change how they're voted in. Instead of having 48 people with one person standing up and giving a PowerPoint presentation. 
open it up to members of the Pro Football Writers Association of America. Don't have this asinine number where you can only get in five people. Open it up, have players on the ballot, and you vote. You can vote for up to 10. And there's a certain threshold that you have to meet. And unlike baseball, all the ballots are public and your name is on it because you have to back it up. Yeah, that is the one thing that you and I are adamant about, and it's taking ownership for your vote. Own your vote in this situation. This isn't a, this isn't a political contest. You're not, we're not talking about voting for the president of the United States and people who don't want to share who they vote for. Cause they don't talk about politics. This is the pro football hall of fame. This matters. This is important. And so you should have to share your vote. I should know why you voted for who you voted for. And if you vote for John Lynch, but you don't vote for Steve Atwater, then you should have to, you should have to face the fire a little bit and be able to support your reasoning behind why you voted for one guy over the other. I absolutely agree with that. And if it's because, you know, Jeff Legwald didn't do a very good job presenting Steve Atwater and whoever the heck it is that's going to present John Lynch did a really good job, I want to know that too because I want to know if the guy who's presenting my guy is actually doing a good job or if he's just there for the buffet. They still have a buffet, right? Oh, I'm sure they do. I bet it's nice. So it... I'm hopeful for Steve. I really want it to happen. As you said, there's not a greater guy. He's a hall of famer on the field and off it. it, He is, he's just, he's a special man. And it, it, I, I really do want it to happen for him and his family. I want him to get that knock on the door because there is nobody more deserving than the smiling assassin. And I really, really hope the 48 members of that selection committee get him into the hall of fame and he gets that knock on his hotel room door. And with that, let's go ahead and, and take a little pause here. We're going to do a quick commercial. We're going to come back with uh, Jeff Essery of uh, Mile High Report Radio. Uh, he was on with us uh, previewing the Senior Bowl. He was out watching the Senior Bowl. He was there for the practices, and we're going to talk to him about what he saw and what his thoughts are on that uh, when we come back. And now we welcome in Mile High Report's Jeffrey Essery, who was down at the Senior Bowl, and be sure to follow him on the Twitter machine at Jeffrey Essery. He's a great follow. So, Jeff, what what are your general takeaways from the the practices that you were there for, uh, covering and and watching? Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me on. Um, great experience being down at the Senior Bowl again. Um, like I, we mentioned on the previous show, I got a chance to do it back in 2018. Missed a year last year, and so it was good to, good to be back and um, down there to just, you know, check out the prospects. And also just, I think, the kind of getting a chance to connect with the rest of the NFL community. There were several other Bronco folks down there, too, some Bronco radio folks from KOA and all of that. So it's just good to kind of, um, you know, hear here's kind of what's going on around the league and that kind of stuff too. But then I think, I don't think it can be um, overstated just the ability to watch those players up close and in person, you know, especially in the one-on-ones it just gives you a whole nother look that you don't get. And really, you know, that we as fans don't um, get a ton to look at these players without the all 22. Anyway, you're looking at, you know, college broadcast tape and highlight film and trying to piece stuff together. If you don't have all the, the all 22 stuff. And so this is a great opportunity to see these guys kind of in a live environment, um, see what they do. And really for some of the small school prospects, see what they can do against, 
the bigger competition, you know, because this is kind of the the best of the best in terms of the seniors that they bring in. And there's some really talented guys and a couple first round guys, you know, that'll be coming out of the senior bowl. Um, Jim Nagy was given the stats when he kicked it off. The He's the executive director of the senior bowl. And uh, last year, I think it was nine um, players in the first round from the senior bowl that were drafted. Um, I don't know. It'll be nine this year. It, it, it may actually be because um, a couple guys that probably will be first rounders ended up dropping out. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of top talent, probably, you know, several top 50 picks down there in mobile. Um, and then of course, depending on where the quarterbacks go, there were several, you know, quarterbacks that may go high. So yeah, a lot of good talent down there. And so it's a great opportunity to evaluate these guys in a different environment with, um, you know, competing against some of the top players. Cool. I like that. So was there, was there anybody, so like when you were down there, was there anybody who you sort of gravitated towards as far as, you know, we're going to talk about uh, like players that you think the Broncos should target players that you think they shouldn't target that kind of thing. But was there anybody who not necessarily a target for the Broncos, but just any, any of the guys that were down there that just sort of took over uh, the senior bowl. That's always kind of an interesting thing to me. Like, you know, these, these are guys that you probably would consider to be like the top guys on their teams, uh, team captains, those kinds of things. But was there anybody who sort of stood out as 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 a guy or a few guys who just kind of everybody graduate, you know, sort of gradually gravitated towards? Yeah, so a couple of guys that really looked elite when you got them um, out there on the field. Uh, the first one is Javon Kinlaw, and everybody was excited to see him, um, the defensive lineman from South Carolina, and. First of all, he's humongous. Uh, seeing him uh, up close and live, he's like 6'6", 310. Um, the guy is, you know, has super explosive um, first step. And, you know, one of the first reps out of the gate in the one-on-ones, he just blew his matchup, you know, a um, couple yards back. And so it was – he was drew a lot of attention, Um you probably saw a lot of stuff on, on Twitter of stuff of, you know, highlights of him. I think he had a really good first day of practice. Second day, unfortunately, he came up a little gimpy after the one-on-ones. Um, and he ended up, he, he actually muscled through it. I was surprised if I was his, um, I was surprised his people didn't, you know, pull him off and say, you're not, you're going to shut him down. We're not playing anymore. But he, he toughed through it and played a little bit more in the team periods, but you could tell he was affected and was limping a little bit. Um, so they ended up shutting him down after that day. Um, and you know, he's going to be okay, but it was just, you know, he kind of tweaked something. And so, um, it was sad to see him not be able to finish the whole thing, but that first day, man, he was absolutely dominant. Um, and so he was a lot of fun to watch and he's actually a target. I do like for Denver. Um, but who knows if he'll be there or not, but he was one that just really stuck out that everybody was buzzing about. Um, KJ Hill, the wide receiver from Ohio state was another one to me that really took over in practice, especially on the first day and the third day. Uh, he had some incredible catches. Denzel Mims is another guy, the wide receiver from Baylor. He had probably, you know, one of the top weeks um, out of the receiver class. And it was a really good receiver class this year, too. And so those guys, I think, really stuck out to me. And then um, we'll talk about some of the other ones that I like for Denver as well. But those are the three that, you know, just right off the top of your head had really good weeks of practice. In terms of the quarterbacks, how it's a little bit different as we talked about when we previewed the Senior Bowl with you. Now that Denver isn't looking for one, but how how did Herbert? How did uh, uh, Jalen uh, uh, Jalen Hurts? 
How did he look? How, how did the quarterbacks in general look in terms of uh, all the preparation and, and where they could potentially fall in the draft? Yeah, I think Justin Herbert helped himself. Um, he came out and looked solid, you know. Um, I think anything that he could do to continue to show uh, what you know, show off his arm. It's a perfect opportunity for him because, you know, he thrives in that kind of he's toolsy. He's got a big arm. Um, he can move. And I think he showed all of that. He was probably the best quarterback there. Um, and so you, you expect him to, to go pretty high. You know, you, you look at the, I think five, six and seven in the draft is all teams that could be, you know, in the market for a, a quarterback. You have the chargers in Miami there. Um, and so I, I could see Herbert going in the top six potentially, or if somebody tries to jump one of them um, to get a, a guy like Herbert after maybe Burrow and um, Tula are gone. And so I think Herbert kind of solidified his uh, stock as a top 10 guy. Um, Jalen Hurts was pretty inconsistent, I would say. Um, and one of the things was interesting, and you mentioned it, since Denver doesn't need a quarterback – I didn't really have to focus on the quarterback at the time. I mean, I watched them because you're watching the receivers and stuff, but um, it was actually kind of freeing not having to pay attention to the quarterbacks and, and see what they can do really because, you know, you're looking elsewhere for Denver and trying to hone in on on the guys that they would get. But I thought Jordan Love was probably the next best quarterback. Uh, I think he could, you know, he's a guy that needs some development, needs some refinement, but I think he could be a good player at the next level. Um and really, those two guys were kind of you know head and shoulders above the others to me um, in terms of Herbert and Love. And then you know Jalen Hurts is a guy that I think you know still needs some refinement and stuff. So you know, kind of who knows where he would go um, just based on what people need. You know, you could he could potentially slip into the mid rounds or something like that, but I don't think he'll go, he'll go first round. Um, and not just because of his performance at the senior ball, but just, you know, overall, I think he needs some time as a passer. So that being said, and, and actually it's interesting you bring up the point uh, we've talked about it as far as the Broncos not needing to look for a quarterback, not only in, in the draft, but also in free agency. And so as we move forward, that'll be something that is kind of a theme, but uh, all of that being said, was there was there a particular player or a group of players that you uh, saw as good fits that maybe the Broncos should be looking at, uh, you know, just in general that that you really that you really liked? Yeah, so I really honed in on the defensive line, the offensive line, um, and those trench battles, and those are the funnest to watch anyway. Um, because, you know, they, they get them out there and, and get the one-on-one drills going on. Um, so really paid attention to those guys. And then the DB wide receiver matchups as well. And I think those are some of the, the better ones um, that you can watch. You can you can kind of see some out of the linebackers and the, and the running backs and stuff. But really, those groups are the ones that you can, I think, get the most um, out of when you're watching them in the drills. And it happens to fall really nicely with Denver's needs, you know, um, with the potential exodus of a bunch of free agents on the defensive line, you know, Denver may lose two starters on the offensive line. They've got some needs there, um, especially on the interior. If they move on from Ronald Leary, depending on what happens with Connor McGovern. So I was watching the guards and centers, um, pretty closely. And then, um, you know, Denver needs a corner and they're in the market for a wide receiver and really a particular type of wide receiver. And so some of the guys in mobile, while they looked good, you know, aren't necessarily fits for Denver, I don't think, because they kind of bring a similar skill set to Cortland Sutton. Um, 
So really watching the defensive line, offensive line, and, um, you know, a couple guys stuck out to me there. Um, obviously, Javon Kinlaw, we've already talked about him. Um, I think he could be a great fit for Denver at 15. That's kind of the range that people are talking about him at, or, you know, if he falls a little bit, if Denver traded back, you could potentially get him maybe in the 20s, um, in, the, in the high 20s or, or late teens if Denver wants to move a couple slots. Um, but I think he's a great option on the interior of the defensive line. I think he fits with what Fangio wants to do. He can move up and down the line. He's comfortable two-gapping or one-gapping. Um, obviously, he's you know explosive. He's kind of a penetrator, but he can stack and shed and stuff too. Um, on the offensive line, though, I was really impressed. I really wanted to watch for the centers and guards, depending on what Denver does with Connor McGovern, and I was really impressed with Lloyd Cushenberry uh, from LSU. I think he'll go first round. I think he, he got a lot of buzz in the senior bowl was probably one of the top performing offensive linemen there. In my opinion, um, he's quick. They, the Bengals staff did a really good job um, doing a lot of zone drills because that's what they run. Um, and so, you know, he was, they were doing a lot of zone cutoff drills and things like that um, and reaching the three tech and, and things like that. He looked great in those drills, moved well, um, and is good sized. He's not, he's not an undersized, um, center and he's got, you know, the term the scouts always using, he's got sand in his pants. He gets low and can really, um, hold up against power and bull rushes. He went up against, um, Neville Gallimore several times on who's the defensive tackle from Oklahoma, who's probably a top, you know, 50 pick on the defensive line. And he stonewalled him several times in the drills, um, and just re- looked really sharp out there. I talked to him. Uh, he was a he's a really cool kid. Um, one of the interesting things that you know I wanted to ask specifically the centers was, you know, what kind of responsibilities and stuff did you have in the offense? And so talking to Cushenberry, you know, he said, hey, it was you know for the several years for the I mean, really the last three years at LSU, he's like, I, it was me. I was the show in terms of calling the protections and stuff. And he said Joe Burrow this last year had the opportunity to override him if he saw something, but it started with Lloyd um, making the calls for the rest of the line, making the protection calls. Um, And so, you know, he's obviously a smart guy. He knows what he's doing there. And, um, you know, that's what I think that along with his physical attributes and how he played will translate really well into the next level. Um, And so, you know, I think maybe they Denver could potentially try to get him in the second if he slips a little bit since he is that, you know, a center, but, he could potentially play guard too at the next level. So I think you could see him go in the first round, but he would be one that, you know, depending on what Denver does with Connor McGovern, I would really like to see uh, with the Broncos. In terms of the overall draft as a whole, as it stands right now, who do you want the Broncos to draft? Regardless if they were in Mobile for the senior bowl, who who would you like to see them take with that number 15 pick as it stands right now? Gosh, that's a tough one because it's so, you know, especially with what happens at the quarterback position at the top of the draft, there could be a lot of talent falling down. Um, you know, I, I really like the top guys at the receiver position. I like Ruggs from Alabama, um, like Judy from Alabama as well. Love C.D. Lamb, you know, from the Sooners. And so you, know, you could get an explosive playmaker um, at that position. You could have a top tackle fall to you and like a Tristan Wirfs or something like that. Uh, I don't think Derek Brown will be there. He would probably be my number one pick that I would want to see. Um, but I think he'll be gone in the top five, the defensive tackle from Auburn. He's just, you know, incredible. So, 
he'd probably be the, you know, your, your pipe dream for Denver. Um, but I think they could get a, a really good consolation prize if Javon Kinlaw fell down to 15. And so, the, you know, the good thing is I think Denver's got a lot of different options. And so it's not really a good answer to your question in terms of exactly who would I want. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about the corner position, a guy like Christian Fulton, who I really wanted to see at the senior bowl, but he came up hurt. Um, and it really, you know, he had just come off the, the big title game and was kind of nursing some injuries. So he pulled out at the last minute um of the senior bowl but you know there's some corners that can be looked at for denver as well so they've got a lot of options um one of the guys who actually was at the senior bowl who i think will probably go in the first round that i wouldn't mind seeing denver go um and get is tackle josh jones um he's an offensive tackle for houston uh, and i thought he was you know aside from cushionberry i thought he was the next you know those two guys were probably the top offensive linemen there um, and he looked really good. And, you know, he's, he's playing at um, a smaller school in Houston. I actually talked to him about that. And he, he kind of bristled at that. He was like, I hate the small school, you know, um, stereotype. He's like, we got some good competition there in the AAC. And, um, and he showed it, you know, he came in the senior bowl and took on, you know, some of the top pass rushers there. Um, Strobridge was a guy from UNC who was looking really good, having a really good week. And Josh Jones um, handled him nicely in the one-on-ones and the team periods. I think he, I think he really made himself a lot of money uh, this week, and he'll probably go in the first round. But, you know, Denver's got to figure out what they want to do with Garrett Bowles. And, um, you know, they've, they can't hurt to have a good top tackle, um, especially if James continues to be hurt. And so, you know, he's another guy that I would like to look for maybe in, later in the first round um, if Denver decided to trade back. So a lot of options, you know, with where Denver sits. Uh, I got a quick question about Fool's Gold. Was there anybody there who, uh, if the Broncos were to to pick them, uh, you know, to, to say when well, this is who we're going to go with, you would be disappointed because they you think that they're, they're just Fool's Gold. They're just somebody who's not uh, who, who's not what they what, what people might think that they are. There were a couple tackles that um, there was a guy um, Pert from uh, UConn. And he was kind of touted to be um, – I mean, he's a toolsy guy. And, you know, I think I, we were expecting to see more from him, most of the people there. And he looked all right to me, but he, he didn't look, you know, super refined. I think he needs some um, refining at the next level. He's got some good length, but just he, he was mistiming his punch a lot on a lot of the one-on-ones. And so I don't think he really is um, honed in on how to use his, his tools yet. And so – you know, that's a guy that if Denver went, I don't think he'll go very high, but if, if Denver wanted to, you know, pick a tackle, um, I'd be okay with them getting him, just not super high. Um, Nick Harris was a center that a lot of people were talking about coming in. There were some mixed reviews, even at the Senior Bowl, of some people saying he did well um, and, you know, he's kind of a zone scheme center. Um, I would I would want Denver to stay away from him for sure. He didn't have a good week at all, in my opinion. Um, and so – that's one for sure that I don't uh, wouldn't want them to see uh, wouldn't want to see them go after. And then at the receiver position, I think there's some guys that clearly have some talent. You had Michael Pittman had a really good week, and Denzel Mims that I mentioned had a really good week. Um, and so it's not necessarily the talent that isn't there, but I wouldn't want to see Denver go after them, mainly for the reason that they kind of do what Cortland Sutton does. Um, and it doesn't ever hurt to have two great receivers on the outside that can you know um, win. 50-50 balls and create separation at the catch and all of that. But if you want to diversify your your weapons, you know, Denver's kind of looking for a different type of guy. And so I don't know that they would 
go after a, a guy like a Michael Pittman or a Denzel Mims, um, mainly just to try to differentiate. And you've got Tim Patrick already on the roster too, who kind of duplicates Sutton's skill set. So uh, I think they'd want to look elsewhere at the receiver position. To change it up a little bit, before we even get to the draft, we'll go through free agency. And Mile High Report is going through some potential targets in terms of free agency. As it stands now, who do you think the Broncos should target in terms of free agency when it opens at the beginning of March, when the league year starts? Um, uh, Whether it's offensive line, you had a piece on a potential guard who could be available, and it's not the one most people think. It's not Brandon Scherf. Um, but who are some guys that you think John Elway and, and the front office should target once free agency opens? Yeah, first of all, Justin Simmons, um, Denver's own free agent. They got to get him locked up. And so that'll take some of their cap room. So I think, you know, you absolutely have to lock him down and don't let him get to free agency. Um, after that, I kind of go back and forth on Connor McGovern on bringing him back, um, especially after being down at the senior bowl and seeing some of the, you know, some of the center talent or some of the interior offensive line talent available. Um, I think Denver could potentially just replace him and, and you get a guy that Mike Munchak can coach up um, and spend the money elsewhere. You know, I put, you, you mentioned it, I, I put a piece out um, this uh, past week and, you know, really explore the idea that if you're going to spend double digit, you know, millions, $10 million ish on Connor McGovern, you might as well pay a little bit more of a premium and go get a guy like Joe Tooney, who was the guy that I was talking about, um, the guard from the Patriots. He's was drafted in 2016 and he hasn't missed a game. Um, he's a second team all pro and he's allowed, I think two sacks in the last two years. Um, the guy's absolutely, um, incredible in pass blocking. So ESPN, Next gen stats, you know, they've got the tracking, the player tracking and stuff, and they've come out with a new metric. And, you know, no metric can perfectly capture specifically offensive line play and and, and the trench battles, but this one does a pretty good job, I think. Um, So they look at what they call pass blocking win rates, essentially um, based on the player tracking data, what linemen held their blocks um, for at least 2.5 seconds. Um, And he was second in the league. Uh, with a 97% win rate. I mean, Marshall Yonda was the was number one. And so um, really good in, in pass protection and a great puller in the run game as well. I put in a piece as well. You know, you, you look at you bringing him in, into Denver and you look at what Dalton Reisner did last year on some of the power and counter runs. You expect Denver to run a little bit more of that, actually, maybe with um, Shermer coming in on the offensive side and Munchak staying. And so now you have the ability with Tooney, who's an elite puller on his own, um, to pull to either side with either guard, um, Dalton Reisner and Tooney. And so those guys in the run game would be a lot of fun. Uh, So I think that's a guy Denver could potentially, if they wanted to go be big spenders and splurge a little bit, you know, you've got a a rookie contract with Drew Locke with your quarterback. You're freeing up a lot of cap space. I think what better way to go solidify, um, you know, his development and his growth than building a wall around him, you know, with the offensive line. And so that's a guy that I would potentially target if they don't want to go, you know, that expensive. Another guy that I really like is Kelechi Osimile. He was um, cut. Nobody's really talking about him because he was kind of um, the, it was an odd situation with the jets where he was wanting to have surgery and they didn't want him to have surgery. And the, 
you know, the Jets are kind of classic, they classically mishandled several player injuries. And so um, they ended up letting him go in, I think, October. And so he's a free agent. And um, word is, you know, he had the surgery after they cut him. And so um, if he's healthy, I think he's another great player that, you know, is was one of the top guards just a year ago in the league. And so if, if he's even got, you know, 90% of that or 80% of that still in the tank, um, is able to to be healthy coming off that surgery. I think he's a great uh, fit for Denver, um, and could probably come cheaper than Joe Tooney, who will probably end up being, you know, will set the market for guards. So we're looking at 15, 16 million a year, but that's some areas that I think Denver could go on the offensive line in free agency. So then you're not having to draft two guys in um, on the offensive line, like a center and a guard. And then, you know, you've already got Dalton Reisner, who's still a little young on the inside. So it gives some experience and a veteran um, there. And so I like the idea of doing that and then drafting it like wide receiver um, or cornerback. So that way uh, you can, you know, continue to grow into those positions. um, And maybe those guys can jump in and produce right away. Whereas, you know, an offensive lineman takes a little bit to develop, although, Dalton Reisner, sure, you know, he had a pretty short runway to producing. And so um, another guy that I really like is Byron Jones uh, for Denver. That's another big ticket, you know, free agent. So I'm not I'm not going for any of the bottom shelf guys. These are all the top shelf um, ones. But Byron Jones is an absolute lockdown corner. You know, he played safety a little bit for Dallas. Um, but once they moved into cornerback and finally got smart and started playing him there, he's been, you know, one of the underrated, probably one of the best cornerbacks in the league, at least a top 10 cornerback. And not a lot of people have talked about him. And Dallas has a ton of contracts coming up. And so it looks like, you know, they may not pay him or want to pay him top dollar. And so um, I think he'd be a perfect fit in Denver and could really lock down one of those cornerback slots um, and give Denver a, you know, a big piece to build around in the secondary and Fangio, a guy that, you know, he can move around and um, can really take on that top wide receiver with Chris Harris going. And I'll throw out one more. It's one that uh, Scotty has thrown around. You could go Jones and Jones, especially if the Chiefs aren't able to lock him up. How would you feel about potentially adding a guy like Chris Jones to the defensive line? Yeah, I love the idea of bringing Chris Jones. And he's another guy, you know, he'd be a top shelf one, so he'd be expensive. Um, Clay Campbell's another name that was brought in or that was thrown around. Um, you know, he's a little older, and Denver almost signed him last year or two years ago, I believe. Um, so he may be a little cheaper than Chris Jones. But, yeah, um, getting some, you know, big-time heavyweight on the interior. You see what Akeem Hicks was able to do last year with the bears and really the last two years um, with the bears in Fangio's scheme and Denver and Denver really doesn't have a guy like that. Who's, you know, more, you know, their guys are a, a little smaller. Um, we thought that would potentially be Shelby Harris, but you know, he's, he's a little smaller than uh, Hakeem Hicks. Um, and Hicks is a guy who's just, you know, big and strong. He's over 300 pounds. He can stack and shed. Um and so, you know, you look at a guy like Chris Jones who could potentially do that and bring more pass rush juice uh, would be, I think, a great fit in Denver. You know, the biggest thing would be price tag there. But, yeah, I mean, him rushing in between um, Bradley Chubb and Vaughn Miller would be something that would be really fun to watch. Phenomenal as always, Jeff. I mean, a plethora of knowledge that we can we can now delve into, which I think is fantastic. And, and again, you did a great job, and you got to go to the Senior Bowl. So, uh, there you definitely. go. Hey, yeah. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one more guy. He's my sleeper. 
um, for, from the senior bowl. Uh, keep an eye on Hakeem and Dinajai. He's a tackle for Kansas, um, played left tackle for, I think, all four years um, at Kansas. And they moved him over to guard just at the senior bowl. So people probably, you know, think he projects. I talked to him after the, um, after one of the practices, he said, most teams are looking at him to project over to guard. So they kicked him over there and he killed it. I thought he had a great week. Um, talked to him. Like I said, after one of the practices, he hasn't played guard since high school, um, and moved over. So for him to jump in there and look as comfortable as he did, he looked great in pass protection. Um, I think, you know, he's still working out the nuances of switching over to guard, but I think he could be a guy, um, you know, one of those tackles that needs to move over at the next level and ends up being a great guard. Um, and so I, I'd look for him in the middle rounds. I think he'd be a great fit for Denver as well. But he was a, one of the sleepers for me that, that stuck out that I think, um, you know, people weren't really paying attention to until they saw him down there in the senior bowl. Like I said, a plethora of knowledge, a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, Jeff, we really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. You can follow him at Jeffrey Essery on the Twitter machine. All right, good stuff from Jeff, uh, as always. And uh, so now we're going to turn our focus to the Super Bowl. And we're Do gonna, we have to? We can, Well, this is a, a, it's a Denver Broncos podcast, but the Denver Broncos are a football team, and the Super Bowl is a clash between two football teams. And unfortunately, one of them – is one of the Broncos' biggest rivals in the Kansas City Chiefs. So, yeah, we we have to talk about it a little bit. We don't have to go too deep into it, but a little bit. There is a, a graphic tweeted out by somebody, and I don't know the outlet, but it said the rooting interest based on Twitter data for who states are rooting for in the Super Bowl. I think and I retweeted it actually this. had Colorado rooting for the Chiefs. Which is just stupidity. Whoever made that... I, is dumb. I, I get that weed is legal in this state, but no one's that high. I, I mean, I, and and I I do understand that there are people out there who are Bronco fans who are rooting for the Chiefs, and which I don't understand. I, I, I do not get, get it. it. I, the Mile I've High seen... Prophet, the Mile High Prophet has a list of commandments for a Broncos fan, and one of them is thou not thou shall not root for a divisional opponent of the Broncos. Right, and, and that's you just the way it is. Do it. Right. Ever. Ever. Even if they're against the Patriots. And there were people rooting for the Chiefs to beat the Patriots because they didn't want to see the Patriots win another Super Bowl. Okay. So they get their sixth Super Bowl. Ooh. Who cares? It keeps the Chiefs from getting theirs for the first time in 50 years. For the first time since it was actually called the Super Bowl. I, I will say this, and I, and I, I had a, a nice Twitter interaction with the guy uh, and I can't remember his name, and I'm not going to worry about it too much here. But you know, people were tweeting at me because I tweeted something similar to that. And he mentioned that as a Bronco fan, he was rooting for the Chiefs because uh, one of his best friends was a, a huge Chiefs fan and had passed away uh, earlier in the year. And so, okay, there's there's your exception to the rule. Uh, I, th- I think that everybody can accept that as a as an excuse. Uh, but or just family, this, me- like if you have a dad sure. or a family member, Something like that. I think it has to be immediate family. Like it can't be a cousin, right? Like so, it, it has to be a dad. It has to be an uncle, so, somebody very close. To, I think I think it's about closeness, right? We try not to, correct? You know, somebody who was was incredibly important to you in some way. Uh, then I then I will allow I will allow for you to this one time root for whoever it is that you. Uh, feel you need to root for that being said just this one time that's it beyond that i don't care 
So, okay, fine. But but you're right about that graphic. The 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 fact or the thought that enough people in Colorado might be tweeting about can the Kansas City Chiefs would tell you that people in Colorado are rooting for the Chiefs. That's just that's a measure that doesn't measure correctly. It's probably just transplants from Kansas City, which is a terrible place except for the barbecue. And they live in Colorado, and most people in Colorado who are Bronco fans didn't want to tweet about anything when the Chiefs made it to the Super Bowl. And so the only people tweeting were Chiefs fans. That's the only explanation I really have for that. And so if you if you took a if you did that whatever study it was again today, my guess is we would be very maroon in Colorado as far as the team that we're rooting for because there's no way most of Colorado is rooting for the Chiefs. No way. If you want another reason to root for the 49ers, Ben Garland, who is the center for the 49ers, who played for the Broncos, who went to the Air Force Academy. There's your reason to root for the San Francisco 49ers. See? Boom. We found your connection and that's fine. So, all right, let's 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 do a quick preview of the game. Uh you have the 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 best offense in the NFL versus what a lot of people are saying was the best defense in the NFL. I don't know statistically if that's true. It probably is. Um, who's who's going to win this game? I think it'll come down to whether or not the San Francisco 49ers are able to run the football as they have through their first two playoff games against the Vikings and the Packers. If they're able to run the football like that, the Chiefs don't have a chance. They literally do not have a chance if the 49ers run the football like they have in the divisional round and in the NFC Championship game. So that's the key to this football game. What do the Chiefs do to stop the San Francisco 49ers running game? Because we've talked about this. Kyle Shanahan has taken the Mike Shanahan zone running scheme and put it on steroids where he has a way – to run the football regardless of the defensive front that he faces. He's confident that he's going to be able to outwit you in terms of the front that you pose to slow down his running game. So that, to me, is the key to Super Bowl 54. It's Steve Spagnolo against Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. It's interesting when you look at Super Bowls that have a, a, a top-rated defense versus a top-rated offense – it's the defense that has the tendency to come out on top. And as Bronco fans, we know about that, and that's as much as I will say. That being said, the San Francisco 49ers defense is going to have to do something to prevent the Chiefs from getting those chunk plays, those those big hit plays with guys like Tyreek Hill or uh, you know Travis Kelsey, who, who as tight ends go, this is a great tight end battle between Kelsey and Kittle, which is, is going to be kind of an interesting thing to watch, even though they won't be on the field at the same time. I love, I love, oh, it's a battle between, no, it's not. They're not on the field at the same time. But can the, can the 49ers, can Nick Bosa, can the, can the defensive backfield, can, well, first of all, can the, can the defense get to Patrick Mahomes? Can they contain Patrick Mahomes? Can they force him to be just a pocket passer? Because if he gets outside the pocket, he's going to kill you. Can, can the, the defense of the San Francisco 49ers prevent Kansas City from going deep, from getting those chunk plays, from giving up 
a, a, a huge 50-yard run or, or anything like that? Or are they going to succumb to what really does look like one of the better offenses we've seen in NFL history? And, and that really does start up front. It starts up front with the defensive line preventing Patrick Mahomes from being Patrick Mahomes. I think the big thing that stands out from the AFC championship game is it just aside from the severe lack of pass rush from the Tennessee Titans, it's, it's like tackling was anthemic to the Titans. It's like they didn't want to do it like that touchdown run by Patrick Mahomes. There are multiple opportunities to sock him and they didn't. It's like they were scared. That's not going to happen with the 49ers. Robert Sala is going to have his guys amped up and they are going to want to hit the Kansas City Chiefs. And Mike Florio got some some serious uh, blowback for saying that basically you need to hit Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs offense. I think he went a little bit further than that. But remember as a Broncos fan, what Aqib Tlaib did early in the game against the Panthers. He set the tone with that 15-yard face mask penalty on one of the first drives by Cam Newton and the Panthers. That's what the 49ers have to do to the Kansas City Chiefs. They have to come out and impose their physical will. The Chiefs are not a physical offense. They are not a physical team. If you if you hit the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going to get back on their toes. And if you consistently hit them, they're going to fall back. I guess the, the proper term is back on their heels. They're going to fall back on their heels. So that's what's going to be fascinating to me. And this is not to be uh, political or whatnot, but I saw a funny tweet that said, you know Joey Bosa wants that White House trip. Oh, yeah. He's a he's a big fan of or Nick Bosa. Presidents. I think it's Nick Bosa. Nick Bosa is the one that plays for San Francisco. Uh, Joey plays for that team that's supposedly in Los Angeles that – uh, doesn't have any fans. Yeah, that's just that's just the way it is. Sorry, dude. Uh, so you yeah. know Nick Bosa is going to want to. He he wants to get that that White House trip. Yeah, I, regardless I mean, of how you feel about about politics. I, I imagine he he really wants to take Richard Sherman to the White House. I think that's really the goal there. Which I would let's let's face it for That'd sheer entertainment value. Both Nick Bosa and Richard Sherman at the white house with this current administration and the social stuff that goes on between I mean, that would be fascinating. That would be a fun, entertaining trip to the white house. I imagine, uh, Andy Reed wants that trip to the white house. Cause he sees all those burgers that they bring in from like Burger King or McDonald's or Wendy's or wherever. And he just, he gets hungry. You know, he's got the, the mouth. He wants through. all of them. He wants them all. He's, he was probably thinking, well, what's everybody else going to eat? So, there, there is a that the White House trip is apparently a a big motivator for both teams. I think that, and I also believe that Richard Sherman wants to go to the White House as well because he probably has some questions that he'd like to ask of our current president. I, I, I do, and like you said, not to get political, but that will be an entertaining sort of uh, aspect to things if it were to happen. Uh, do you, do you have, do you want to do? Do you have a prediction for this Super Bowl? I. No, because no. I, I I'm just gonna get sick. Like anyone who listened to the the post game conference championship games podcast, we it did make you gagging. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm about to do it again. Yeah, don't do it. 
I, I just I hope I hope it's the 49ers. I I mean, obviously, it would be awesome for Kyle Shanahan, given that his dad won two Super Bowls as head coach uh, of the Denver Broncos. So that would be that would be awesome. He was actually the guy who held uh, his dad's headset cord uh, for Super Bowl 32. So that that would be an incredible moment to watch. And I just I don't want to see the pay. That's I, I don't want to see the Chiefs. I don't want to see Andy Reid ever won a Super Bowl. So I, I hope it's the 49ers. And I will say one last key to the game. I, we mentioned the the 49ers run game against the, the Chiefs defense. It is going – the other thing for me is the front of the, of the San Francisco 49ers getting after Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, and here's hoping that uh, it's, it's a, a golden victory for the 49ers and – a, a big loss for the Chiefs. You've been listening to Mile High Report Radio. Get involved in the discussion at milehighreport.com. And as always, go Broncos.